This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about democracy and its proponents. How much can we really blame politicians for our dissatisfaction and frustration with the political system? What of democracies imposing their form of government on newly formed states? And what can we learn about democracy from bees? Professor of Politics at Sheffield University, Matthew Flinders, comes to the defence of politics with his controversial new book, Defending Politics, Why Democracy Matters in the 21st Century. He tells us how democracy delivers more than we give it credit for, and it's our negative attitudes towards politics that need to change. To say that, OK, politics isn't perfect, it's messy, it involves compromises, things won't go to plan, that's because politics is like life. LSE lecturer in NGOs and Development, Amine Ishkanian, tells us about the failures of top-down approaches to democracy using the example of Armenia's transition from Soviet rule. You need to build democracy organically. It takes time. People have concerns and issues that that are important to them. It can't be decided by someone in Washington or in Brussels and then implemented on the ground. And LSE's Dr George Lawson talks about the books that inspired him into international relations and why blogs should be part of every academic's reading list. Increasingly it's about blogs. It strikes me it's very difficult to remain as an engaged academic, whether it's in terms of our teaching and research, without keeping aware of the constancy of debate taking place. All this and more coming up. Welcome to this LSE Review of Books podcast on democracy and its proponents. With demonstrations over tuition fee hikes and NHS job losses, dismay at cuts to local services and charities, and with low voter turnouts amongst younger voters, there certainly seems to be a lot of discontent, anger and frustration surrounding politics today. In his new book, Defending Politics, Why Democracy Matters in the 21st Century, Professor Matthew Flinders argues that the problem with politics is not politicians themselves, but the public's understanding of the processes involved. In rejecting fashionable fears about the end of politics and daring to suggest that the public, the media, pressure groups and academics are all part of the problem as well as the cure, this book provides a fresh, provocative and optimistic view of the achievements and the future potential of democratic politics. Matthew begins by telling us more about his book and the reasons behind writing it. The book is basically trying to argue that politics delivers far more than most people seem to understand. And in a sense, all I'm trying to really do is engage with a number of people to say that, OK, politics isn't perfect, it's messy, it involves compromises, things won't go to plan. That's because politics is like life. It's all about giving and taking. However, it's far better than all the other options that we have. I was curious to know whether there was a moment, a spark, that inspired you to bring all this together and think, I've got to write this, this needs to be said, people aren't saying it. Well, it was worse than a spark, actually. There was a death. I went to the University of Exeter to examine a, a PhD, and I got back to the railway station, and somebody had thrown themselves off a bridge in front of the train and killed themselves. I mean, that was pretty unfortunate, but it meant I had a 14-hour journey back from Exeter to Sheffield. And I thought, well, gosh, what am I going to do now? And I dug around in my briefcase and I had a copy of Bernard Crick's original In Defence of Politics. So I started reading that, and to cut a long story short, by the time I'd got back into Sheffield, 12 hours later, I'd written this book. And then, of course, I went through polishing and adding and developing little bits. But essentially, there was no second draft. And in a sense, I like that. There's, but there's another sense where I think, well, gosh, I may well have set myself up here by writing something too quickly that everybody else could knock down. But in a sense, you've got to take a few risks. 
One of the chapters that I particularly enjoyed was about the media and this public distrust of politicians is driven a lot by the media and we're seeing stories picking up on very negative aspects of politics but there are hardly any stories about the positive aspects of democracy. And we're in the middle of the Leveson Inquiry at the moment, we're talking about reforming the press, setting new standards... Do you see reforming the press as a move towards more responsible political journalism or do you see more negative coverage of politics and politicians coming our way? Well, I think it's quite interesting. I mean, the only crisis with regard to the media wasn't to do with the Leveson Inquiry. The biggest crisis was that the media hadn't been basically caught decades ago. I mean, what has now come out for those who work within Whitehall or Westminster is nothing new. This was all part of the game we were all forced to play in. So, in a sense, I'm very glad the Leveson inquiry has come forward, but there are obvious dangers about having a regulated press. And, in fact, this isn't about institutions. It's about behaviour. And, essentially, what we need is very simple. We need a move back towards this notion of civic journalism. Journalists are politicians with a small p. Journalists have power, they have an incredible reach, far wider than most politicians. And actually, what I've always found quite refreshing is that if you look at public opinion surveys, there's only one profession that they tend to trust less than politicians, and that's journalists. The problem is that, in a sense, we are focusing more on the uh, print media, whereas the new media, the internet, the bloggers, the trolls, that whole world is actually more intensely anti-political generally than the old written media. And I don't think anyone's really understood yet that the internet was supposed to deliver a richer, fresher, more engaged form of participation, this notion of a digital democracy. My sense is that actually it hasn't delivered that at all. It's allowed a small number of sections to create their own echo chambers and to scream even louder. As a professor at Sheffield University, the students you teach and interact with will already be interested in politics and will sort of see their futures and their careers involved in politics in some way or another. But lots of young people would say that they're not interested in politics, they didn't vote in the last election, and they see politics as something that's above them. What do you think should be on the top of David Cameron's list of getting young people engaged in politics? Well, I think it actually goes back to your question, this notion that there's a them and an us. In fact, there isn't a them and us. Most politicians are just like you and me. You know, most of them have got mortgages. They're trying to do a hard job while balancing lives and children and all the other sort of stresses that we have. We need to basically ensure that we're making younger people particularly understand what politics is all about. And that's something we've really lost. We've, we've developed an environment that says... We're individuals, materialism is what matters, and you should expect politics in the state to behave like a market. And politics was never intended to do that. It's about us and we. It's not about I or me. And in a sense, one of the great things I would do if I was David Cameron is I would absolutely get involved in this um, review of citizenship education in schools. It's not about um, brainwashing people, but if you really want to create a society in which people understand the stresses and strains and the inherent conflicts and contradictions that come in trying to make people that all want different things live together peacefully, then you've got to get there at an early stage. And and what's very interesting, I teach a hell of a lot of undergraduates, but I'm less interested in the undergraduates because they're a self-selecting band that have already made it. A lot of my work actually now is about writing for children. It's about writing for young people. It's about launching new competitions 
through the Political Studies Association that reaches out. So this is a big thing about being a, a university professor. What does it mean? For me, it doesn't mean professing to other professors or my students. That's part of the job, but it's only one small element. The role of an academic is changing, and we are going through a, a culture shift, a culture shift that is driven really by external drivers. And these external drivers are basically saying, at a time when public monies are very scarce and competition for those resources is intense, if you want to take money from the public purse, you need to show that there is some social benefit for using that money. Therefore, now, all academics are under greater pressure to show that their research has some form of impact. Some academics see this as a threat to intellectual freedoms, to thinking. Within political science, there's a much broader debate that began in American political science about the way in which, as the discipline has evolved, it has become disconnected from the world it professes to study. In my experience, at least 99% of the profession, particularly the younger members of the profession, are 100% signed up to this challenge because they feel that you can't study politics from your office. You can't study politics from crunching data. Politics is about emotions and passions and fears and pain. Somehow, the study of politics has become depoliticised. I ask anybody to pick up an academic journal and one to be able to read it and secondly to come away with any sense that they really understood why that mattered to the real world or got any sense of that notion that politics is about human relationships. It is a human science. If academics really cannot construct a narrative that says my research has some relevance to the world in which we live, if they can't do that, then I can understand why politicians and ministers and officials and the public say, well, why the dickens are we funding you? The public don't hate politics. The public are not disinterested in politics. They're very interested in politics. They just don't understand it anymore. One reason for that is I think university professors haven't helped the public understand the world as it changes around them. That was Matthew Flinders on his book Defending Politics, published by Oxford University Press. You can find a review of the book on the LSE Review of Books blog. For our new listeners, the LSE Review of Books publishes daily book reviews on all subjects in the social sciences. Whether you're studying law, health or political science, or you're just interested in architecture, philosophy or climate change, you're sure to find lots of information about the latest and most interesting books. Visit us at lsereviewofbooks.com. One of our most popular reviews is of Thomas Seeley's Honeybee Democracy. Seeley claims that we have much to learn about political organisation from bees. Far from being the boss of the hive, the queen bee is not at all involved in the day-to-day organisation of the community. Workers achieve an enviable harmony of labour without supervision, says Seeley, going on to discuss the wonders of a hive's collective intelligence. To learn more about beekeeping, we caught up with the LSE's very own beehives on the rooftops of Connaught House on the Oldwich in central London to talk about hive behaviour and the origins of LSE bees with co-founder Elisa de Denaro Vieira. We 
started almost two years ago with a grant application from the Sustainable Funds Project and we applied, it was open to anyone at the LSE and myself and the co-year, Julia, applied for a grant to start uh, Beehives at LSE and we were successful and from then on we've been in touch with um, professional beekeepers, LSE estates, students and thankfully today we have quite a thriving beehive. water. While they're building up the hive a lot, they are really, really hungry. So we give them this kind of as they need it. Like they're getting a lot of stuff from the flowers because we can see the pollen in the bottom. Um, but they're also just, they need this because they're really hungry. Like they won't take it if they don't want it. Beekeeping seems to be quite a fashionable activity at the moment. I'm always reading in newspapers about new urban hives popping up after a period of beekeeping decline in the UK. But bees and beekeeping are, of course, so much more than a fad or a fashion. Can you tell us a bit about why they're so important? Well, yes, I think been coming back into daily lives and into cities, especially because of this decline through disease, through um, monocropping, and we've definitely seen an increase now. We've seen a series of reports from the UN, World Food Programme, several newspapers, and people are very, very worried about this. And there are series of subsidies now because bees are so important to pollinate food uh, crops um, and several other supporting vegetation for the ecosystem so we actually have no idea how drastic this decline could actually be the impacts could be terrible so people are very very worried and a lot of awareness a lot of money and and people's time are also going back into reviving the bees thankfully yeah a book that we've reviewed on the LSE review of books is Thomas Seeley's Honeybee Democracy, which details what these incredible insects have to teach us when it comes to decision-making and collective wisdom. What has fascinated you about the way that bees interact? Bees are incredibly fascinating creatures. There are people doing entire PhDs on the way they behave, and I've definitely learned a lot from their collective behavior and their decision-making process is incredible and I think one of the most fascinating or the thing that's definitely close to my mind every time I'm in the hives is that every time you get stung for example the bee who stings you actually dies but that sends off a message to all the other bees that they're in trouble so the first thing you have to do is when you're stung is to actually retreat because the entire hive is actually about to attack you they have this uh, unity and this uh, sense of uh, collective purpose that is very incredible. This month, Armenia celebrates 21 years of independence from the Soviet Union. Armenia became the largest foreign aid recipient per capita in the region, aid that was used primarily for democracy promotion programmes. Despite this, democracy promotion was largely a failure in Armenia, with the West's over-reliance on NGOs to fulfil civil society functions. Amina Ishkanian talks to us about her book, Democracy Building and Civil Society in Post-Soviet Armenia. Cheryl Brumley has more. One of the things that happened after the collapse of the socialist countries was that the West began to fund democracy promotion around the world. And there was investment in trainings, but also for projects. And one of the outcomes after a decade was that 
there was an exponential growth in the number of NGOs. So just to give you the example from Armenia, in 1992, the Ministry of Justice in Armenia had only one registered NGO. After a decade, there was about 4,500 NGOs. So there was this huge spurt. There was a growth spurt. And this was part of the dual transition that was implemented in the former Soviet countries. And the dual transition was to promote a market economy and at the same time to support democracy. And these were seen as being mutually compatible. However, what we've seen in hindsight is that that's not necessarily the case. Where the neoliberal model, which in these countries was to shrink the state, to deregulate and to privatize, and then shift some of the welfare delivery that was done by the state onto non-state actors, whether NGOs or private companies. What this meant, in essence, was that NGOs came to be seen in a neoliberal light, that they were going to be service providers, that they were going to do technical work. It's very difficult to create democracy from a top-down perspective. I have argued in my work that you need to build democracy organically. It takes time. People have concerns and issues that, that are important to them. It can't be decided by someone in Washington or in Brussels and then implemented on the ground. This model of democracy building and democracy promotion was very much um, a model of social engineering in which donors injected funding and they grew a huge sector, but it wasn't sustainable and it's not sustainable even now. One of the things that I'm beginning to see is a relationship that's a love-hate relationship between NGOs and some of the civil society initiatives and civic activists. You include a quote from a former European commissioner who said democracy is not instant coffee. Is the problem with civil society strengthening programs that they expect too much too soon? Yes, I think that's one of the problems. I think they expect too much too soon that you can simply inject funding, you can do capacity building and trainings, and voila, you're going to have civil society and democracy. This isn't the case. Look how long it took for England to build its democracy. So I think that has to be taken into account, that it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen because there's project funding. And I think a related problem is that it might not turn out the way that you wanted it to turn out. And this is an issue that some of the Russians writing about this have seized upon, and they talk about it as sovereign democracy. And they argue that each country is going to have a different model. This is a very slippery slope. If you go down this, you can say, well, actually, democracy in my country doesn't include universal suffrage. You know, I think there has to be some universal understandings and definitions of what democracy is. But I think to expect every democracy and every civil society to look like you know, whatever we have in the United States or in the UK is, is also slightly in, unreasonable. And I think that has been one of the problems in terms of civil society promotion was that the US took such an active role. And what they were trying to create was very much built on the US nonprofit model. But that's not going to be possible or even feasible or desirable everywhere else. In this new age of technology and social media and the internet, do you think there's more opportunity for NGOs to lead a bottom-up approach? I think that's a very interesting question, and I've written um, a small article on that, taking this idea of what some scholars call liberation technology. Because one of the ideas that's emerged in the past few years is that if you have the technology, then you can campaign. And of course, if we look at the Arab Spring, social media played a key role in bringing people to the squares. But I don't think social media is going to create revolutions. It might facilitate, it might aid in campaigning, but it's not enough if you don't have real ideas and real people who are then going to implement some of those things. 
In looking at homegrown democratic movements in the Arab Spring countries and even countries that are in a slow and unsteady transition, such as Burma, what advice would you give to NGOs or foreign governments that seek to promote democracy and also wish for success beyond the project level? I think one of the, the things that I would advise donors is to have a good understanding of what exists on the ground. They have to have a very clear assessment of that because unless you can recognize what's there, it's often that you're going to make mistakes. The second is don't expect too much too soon. You have to take a long-term view of things and you also have to build capacity because, again, if we go back to Armenia, I think the donors did succeed in building capacity. And there are people who've, who've developed skills and networks. But that takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think one of the important things is building networks beyond their country. These activists, these NGO actors, feel that they are part of something larger than their own country. And to understand that these processes and the problems they face are faced by others. And I think that's important. One of the things that I'm very interested in is looking at globally what's happening with um, the movements of 2011, if we call them. And there was a lot of euphoria last year around the Arab Spring, around Occupy. We hear less of it now because I think it's one thing to have movements in the squares and in the streets, and then it's one thing once they move out of the streets. And I think this is the process that I'm most interested in, is how do you institutionalize change? How do you get change at the structural level? And I think these are processes that are still developing, but I think it's very important for us as scholars of civil society to see how they develop. And I think there are more links between the pro-democracy and anti-austerity movements than we've discovered, because I think they are ultimately talking about the power relations, about the youth feeling disenchanted, about not feeling that they have a stake in society, where you have high levels of youth unemployment. The riots of last year were also indicative of this. So I think we have a very interesting time period to look at these things. That was Armina Ishkanian talking about her book Democracy Building and Civil Society in Post-Soviet Armenia, out now in paperback. George Lawson is Professor of International Relations at the LSE and an expert in democratisation and revolutions. George considers the books that inspired him and begins by telling us about the role that the anti-apartheid movement had in sparking his early interest in the subject. books that I find inspiring are linked to events and the events that really began to awake my political curiosity was the end of communism in Eastern and Central Europe between 1989 and 1991 particularly the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was 16 turning 17 that summer and it was the first big international event and process that I remember being gripped by. I was glued to the TV, I started reading avidly anything I could about the subject and the books that stick with my mind are by a guy called Timothy Garton Ash, who's partly a journalist and partly an academic. And he went to Eastern and Central Europe during the summer and then the winter of 1989 and reported firsthand on the revolutions that were taking place. The two books were called The Uses of Adversity and then The Magic Lantern. And what I loved about the books was that they combined journalistic readability, excitedness, passion for the subject, with also some deeper reflections and analytical punch. And it was that that I actually tried to continue when I started studying as a undergraduate some years later, the same idea of being captivated and passionate, but also having some deeper reflections you could bring to bear on the subject. The other event at the time which had a comparable 
hold on my political imagination was the end of apartheid in South Africa. I was a North London boy in the 1980s and it was de rigueur to be part of the anti-apartheid movement. Oliver Tambo was in exile in Muswell Hill. Uh, Winnie Mandela would often come past. I was at school with people who'd been kicked out of the country. And again, there are two books that I remember from the time that combined, like the Garnash books, a sense of journalistic excitement, passion with these deeper reflections. One was a guy uh, called Alistair Sparks. The book was called Tomorrow is Another Country. And the other one was Anthony Sampson's biography of Nelson Mandela. And again, it was that combination of bringing a subject alive for, at the time, a young person, while also giving them some background and some depth and some analytical understanding of the deeper complexities. Later academic books that I remember from my master's and then from my PhD, there are two. Uh, the first was by a guy called Michael Mann, it's called The Sources of Social Power. And this was an epic. This was the first academic epic that I had come across. I think it took him 2,000 pages before he got to the 18th century. And he claimed that it was a, a study of everything. It was a history from the beginning until the present day. And what I loved in particular was the combination of detail and knowledge of particular events and histories and particularities around the world with a toolkit that allowed you to understand them in a broader context and in comparison with other such events. So it was deep, it was detailed, but it was also lively and exciting and something that was actually, again, quite readable. And a comparative work more closely related to my field, which I read during my PhD, was actually by my supervisor, Fred Halliday. And it was his great book, Revolutions and World Politics. And this is when... I combined, if you like, the early interest in the political subject of revolutions with this broader analytical interest in how you could situate revolutions next to understandings of world historical development more generally, with this interest in international comparisons, always thinking about the international dimensions of these particular processes. And again, it had this link between historical detail and analytical punch. The last five years I actually find harder to think about than some of the earlier work, but there are two books I think do stand out. One is by Sidney Tarot, and it's called Strangers at the Gates. And Sidney Tarot is a very well-known American sociologist who's worked in something called the field of contentious politics really all his life. And this is, I dread to say, his final statement, but what it is is an accumulation of his great works over a long period of engagement through the 50s, through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s. He's seen an enormous amount change in the world. And what I like about it is that he stayed so open-minded during this period and he's never stopped being captivated by his subject matter, being interested in his subject matter. And it's a wide-ranging subject matter from civil rights movements in the US to broader transnational circuits and so on. But he brings that rich biography to bear the enormous engagement with different periods of contentious politics over time with this very robust analytical toolkit that actually gets him to explain really quite different episodes using a similar type of toolkit that's actually again something that you can follow very easily and get caught up in the detail but never lose track of the broader picture. The second book is by Steve Levitsky and Luke and Way and it's called Competitive Authoritarianism. Now this book put a name to something that I'd been thinking about and wasn't quite clear what to call. It seemed to me that after 1989 and during the 1990s, people quite readily associated the spread of the market around the world with democracy. They necessarily put those two together and thought that one went hand in hand with each other. For a long time I thought that was the wrong thing to do. And it goes back to my own work when I studied, at least for part of my first book, the Pinochet period in Chile where I saw that neoliberalism and markets 
could very feasibly go hand in hand with authoritarianism. In fact, sometimes market forces like nothing more than an iron fist to protect them. So it struck me that the market and the democracy didn't need to go together, and actually markets could easily be embedded in authoritarian structures. And it seemed to me that that was exactly the type of thing that was going on in China, was going on in Russia, and to some extent in some South Asian states like Malaysia. But I wasn't quite clear what to call it. And uh, Levitsky and Wei came along, and they've called this type of hybrid structure, market, private sector, within an authoritarian state, competitive authoritarianism, because it does allow some market freedoms, and it does allow some restricted political freedoms. These states have elections. The current regime usually doesn't lose them, and it has an enormous advantage, which makes it very unlikely that it will lose them, but it can lose them, and when it loses them, real uh, uh, issues erupt from below. And an example is Ukraine in 2003. So it's a powerful book that put a name to something I've been thinking about and I think generates an enormous amount of research in its own right. And like the other books I've talked about, combines rich detail, broader analytical framework that itself is an ongoing research agenda, asks as many questions as it provides answers to. And one thing I would like to mention increasingly, it's about blogs. It strikes me as very difficult to remain as an engaged academic, whether it's in terms of our teaching and research, without keeping aware of the constancy of debate taking place, not just in a Twitterish way, but in a very deep, engaged way in terms of social media. So I increasingly, actually, for both research and particularly for teaching, do keep abreast of blogs. And if I do find any spare time, it's usually looking at blogs either to do with my subject or more often than not to do with football. That was Professor George Lawson. To read and hear more from leading academics on pivotal books in their career, see our Academic Inspiration series on the blog. Thanks for joining us on this episode of LSE Review of Books. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley, and you can find a full list of the music and sound heard in this podcast on the blog. Next month, we talk to experts on China, looking at the country's contributions to philosophy and its rising status as an economic powerhouse. Earlier in the show, you heard our Bee Beats mashup featuring sounds from the busy LSE Beehive. We'll leave you with some more of that now. I'm Amy Mollett. Until next time... (laughs) 